This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. When the music stops, the lights are turned off, and everyone goes home at the end of an unsuccessful campaign, ultimately, the candidate is left asking themselves the question, what's next? The answers that they reach, as we'll soon see, can be wide-ranging. Hello and welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. From time to time, I like to break out of our standard run of episodes and talk to authors and historians exploring presidential history. And I recently had the opportunity to talk with someone who explored the subject from a rather unique angle. Years ago, as historian Peter Shea was knee-deep in research surrounding U.S. history, he realized he had a hunger for learning more about the presidential candidates who didn't make it to the Oval Office. Along with photographer Tom Mayday, Peter decided to place a spotlight on the candidates who helped uphold American democracy, but without all the glory afforded to our presidents. The book that Peter and Tom created is called In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. I'll have a link on the source section for this episode for you to go and get a copy of your own on the Trope Publishing website. And I'd like to say a special thanks to Lauren Ball from Trope for her work in setting up this interview. Listen now as Peter and I dive into the histories of some of the individuals who were unsuccessful in their efforts to get to the presidency. Peter, thank you so much for being here. To get us started, I just want to, because especially the topic of your book is just so fascinating because there are so many books about the American presidents, but not nearly as many about the people who they defeated to get to the office. So just to get us started, what inspired you to do this book? Uh, my friend, the photographer Tom Mayday, um, with whom I done a book project on several years ago, called me up one day, and um, he lives in Chicago, and he said, you know, he, he'd just been passing by the Stephen Douglas Monument in um, Chicago, which he had done for innumerable times, and it just struck him an interesting the idea of having a significant monument to someone who is remembered in part largely because they didn't become president. And then he said, hey, why don't we do a book about the monuments to people who didn't become president. You know, we're not going to get much competition. And I said, that's a funky idea. So I said, sure, sure, let's go ahead and do that. It'd be an interesting side project. And so we worked on it for about, you know, in our spare time, um, probably about six or seven years. And, um, and then it came out last year. And uh, I guess the most interesting thing in terms of that period of time is when we, when we began the book. I mean, public monuments was a topic of, virtually zero interest to the public. And now it's become uh, uh, front page um, news. So that was interesting cultural change. Absolutely. It is all in the news. And it seems like it was a very timely release for your book to be able to enter into that conversation. Yeah, I I really do appreciate the timing. 
uh, yeah, it, and, and, and to some degree we addressed it in the book because um, at least one of the monuments that we make reference to literally changed in the course of the past couple of years, the Calhoun College at Yale. Well, and I really enjoyed the juxtaposition in the book. You know, you have the, the brief biographies of each of these folks, along with the photos and the descriptions of the monuments that were left to commemorate them. And, you know, like you said, and, and you even talked about a couple of them that have changed and Calhoun being one of them. So it sounds like, you know, it was always kind of that intention to have that, that juxtaposition to have the visual and then the biographies. Right, because when we started out, I mean, we had this rough topic, and I said, "But what is the theme of the book? I mean, is it about the is it biographies of the people who ran for president and lost, or is it about their monuments? I mean, how do we? Where's the where's the point of uh, clear connection so that people know what the central topic is? And well, let's just work on it and figure it out as it goes along, let it evolve. And so it it came um, in part about the lives of certain men, but it also became about the role of public memory in American life, which is different from the way it is in, in, in other countries, or at least it has been different. If you go to Europe, uh, statues and monuments to figures are, are everywhere, and um, they're quite common. Here, they're, they're relatively uncommon. They, there was there was more of a monument culture in the 19th century, towns and everything. Everyone, you know, created a monument to someone. And then, as we noted, you know, there, there came a point when we kind of stopped doing that for a while, and... Um, we shifted from statues to buildings. We would name a building after someone. It was a very cost-effective way of continuing the commemoration of, of, of significant public figures without having to hire an artist. It was a very pragmatic American decision. And I think one of the things that makes us stand out is we, we do the building thing rather than the, the statue. But there are obviously enough statues around that people have begun to think about, you know, what do they mean? Who? I think partly because we've begun to ask questions, who are we really? In the past couple of years, uh, and who are we in, on the verge of becoming? And in that sense, um, a conversation about monuments has proven to be um, very useful for us. Absolutely. And as our listeners will see whenever they pick up the book, just to be able to see these monuments that were created are the folks who don't have monuments, the folks who just do have that building that's named after them. It makes, I know for me, it makes me think of all the monuments and buildings that I see on a daily basis, you know, going into the city and, and you pass by and you don't really recognize them or, or really notice them. But once you stop and look at them, it really does become, well, well is this person reflective of where we're at or where we're going? Is this someone who we should be commemorating? And it was interesting, you know, you, you mentioned the Calhoun College and that changing, but then also I remember um, with William Jennings Bryan and how to his hometown, that was something that they wanted to remember. And so they, they adopted the statue, you know, when it was, when it was taken down. So it's, it's just really interesting, and it is an amazing conversation that we're having nowadays about that. Yeah, I think that Jennings Bryan was an excellent example of, of where it signaled a transition between him being a very significant public figure, which there was acknowledgement of, but, and then within space of a decade, they kind of shuffled it away, and it would have, and it could have wound up in a warehouse somewhere. But the but Jennings' legacy really lived on in his hometown and the small towns that that he represented, and I think that's 
there's a certain um, poignance in that because really his his greatest impact was in in the public arena uh, among the people themselves rather than in the government. I mean, he's not the author of any great policy or anything like that. He was a figure that the political establishment had to contend with because he was um, a voice of the people. So in many ways, I think it's it's much more fitting that the Jennings Bryan um, statue wound up where it, where it did. Absolutely. Well, and the folks, that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is that folks don't think as much about these characters who were the also-rans, the ones who ran but lost. But there are so many amazing individuals and characters in those stories. And so I just want to see, were there any individuals that you researched for the book that stood out in your mind or that surprised you? Well, I mean, for example, D. Witt Clinton is is not a name that, that most Americans would recognize. If you live in New York, there are a number of things named after D. Witt Clinton, probably most famously a high school in New York City. But again, the name doesn't strike you unless you are a history of um, a, a student of, of American history in terms of state level. And yet his contributions were so significant, particularly around the construction of, of the Erie Canal, which again was a major public works project early in our history and really shaped where the country went and really was an expression of our of the best use of our um, civic energy. And, and the fact that Clinton died poor suddenly and had, I mean, again, he was not someone who amassed, um, used his public office to amass wealth. He was truly a public servant. And uh, I think that's it's very significant. He did more than so many people did, and he did so little to enrich himself. And you know, I think he really um, captured the spirit of that revolutionary generation that was really fired up with tremendous idealism. Well, and you get to a point that is really at the heart of my work with presidencies with this podcast is you know, highlighting those folks that may not be quite as well known, but at the same time, they had a significant impact on the presidency, on American history, and sometimes on world history. And so it's fascinating to really dive into those lesser known stories. And so you had mentioned earlier that the Stephen Douglas statue was kind of the the impetus for the book. That was the inspiration. And I really enjoyed your section on Douglas. And and you mentioned in there when talking about him that, and and I'm going to quote you here, quote, he, i.e. Douglas, understood the favor he was doing Lincoln with the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And so, of course, that's now one of those monumental points in American history. But would you mind speaking for a bit about that and and what the debates meant for the careers of both Douglas and Lincoln? Because it was, you know, they may not have known quite as much at the time, but it was a pivotal point, I think, for both of them. Oh, exactly. And a pivotal point in our public, political culture because, you know, Lincoln is, is a representative of, of the emerging and rising political party, the Republican Party at the time. And Douglas is a star of the older, more established Democratic Party, which is about to experience uh, um, a catastrophic splinter as a consequence of so many of its supporters forming the Confederacy and will stay out of power nationally for, or, for a few decades. The interesting thing about the Lincoln-Douglas debates is that while Douglas wins the election, his, his star is moving into the twilight, whereas Lincoln is, is going to ascend, partly because of the fame that he gains from the Douglas debate. And 
again, you know, I think it is in Douglas's credit that he agreed to the debates. I mean, he could have just said, I'm not, I know Lincoln, but why am I giving him free publicity? People know me, I just need to speak and I'll win. But again, um, Douglas had the confidence of an intellectually capable man and speaker. And I think like Lincoln, he relished the opportunity to, to step into the arena and, and, and publicly talk about the ideas that he was supporting. Even if sometimes those ideas were motivated by opportunism, he still was able to put on a very formidable argument in favor of them. And, and if you read his responses, you can see why he was such a significant figure. And the fact that both these men were the products of a political culture where eminent men were un- expected to go in front of the, 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 the voting public and defend their ideas hours at a time, if needed. There was This was not the age of sound bites. This was the age of uh, three-hour, full-footed conversations where you, you spoke to the extent to where your voice would carry, and then you would do it again and again in various towns. It was just a given. So there was certainly a, a formidable quality in these individuals, even if you didn't agree with their political philosophy. And I do think Douglas is one of those complicated figures. He's always seen... He survived as the, as the counterpoint to Lincoln, kind of an antagonist, and and that doesn't really capture the fullness of who he was um, and why he was so well thought of and why, after his death, they put up a statue and a very unusual statue too, you know, with the with the elevated platform because, at least in, in his native state or at least in his um, state of Illinois, he was he was still regarded as a giant figure, even though. Towards the end of his life, um, the things that he had fought for did not come to fruition. And that's what's so amazing about studying American history and American political history at that time. You know, we we think of debates as being all about the sound bites, but to your point, it was really you folks didn't have radio, TV, social media like we do nowadays, and so they would go to these debates. It was entertainment. It was also informative. They wanted to hear the debates. They wanted to hear the points. And so you see some of these candidates who have these well-developed platforms, and you also see people like Douglas and Lincoln, even though they disagreed on many issues, they still had a respect for one another. And it sounds like in Illinois, again, even though Douglas may have been not necessarily in favor it was still he was still seen as being that that pivotal figure and that that statesman right exactly again and it's important to to acknowledge the fact that we got a political culture which said that even if you weren't right about everything we're not going to hold that against you you did you fought the good fight you got into the arena you you enriched public life simply by your presence and your efforts uh, and you weren't afraid to enter into a contest where you were going to lose and lose publicly because you felt the stakes were important enough and that you were worthy of the, of, of the fight. So, yeah, I mean, Douglas made it. And overall, I think he made a very positive contribution. Obviously, some of the things he did, like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, had catastrophic um, effect. So he is a complicated figure. But then our history is, is full of complicated figures, and we, we would do well to um, acknowledge the nuances. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And speaking of complicated figures and and definitely a, a character, the person that Abraham Lincoln faced four years later, George McClellan. And there is so much study of George McClellan within the context of the Civil War, but I'm always fascinated to study that election and his candidacy. And so as you discussed McClellan and his tenure as the commander of the Union forces during the Civil War, you wrote, quote, the civil engineer in him, preferring order and precise detail, could not embrace the chaos and uncertainty that battle requires. He had created a great weapon, but lacked the qualities to wield it effectively. So would you mind sharing with the audience your thoughts on the impact that McClellan's military tenure had on the outcome of the 1864 presidential campaign, because that was very much tied in to the campaign, to his candidacy. Right, right. And he was expected by many people to win, including, to a certain degree, Lincoln, because he had been a very popular commander of the Army of Potomac. No matter how much, no, no matter how we remember him, he was regarded as, as a commander who was disciplined, hardworking, and, and just and fair to his men who regarded him with reverence and respect. The one quality he lacked that ultimately would have endeared him completely to his army was the ability to lead him to victory, which is the one thing he couldn't do. And I think McClellan is a fascinating, particularly fascinating case study for us today, particularly when we consider you know, successful people. On paper, McClellan is, he's got the resume that you'd want to hire him for these top jobs. I mean, you can't, I mean, he is a hiring committee's dream. And yet there's that one elusive quality that you overlook, which is the essential ingredient to success in a particular endeavor. And again, um, McClellan just could not apparently bring himself to take risks. And I think partly because he had been too successful in his life and he couldn't, he psychologically was not prepared to deal with the trauma of failing and failing publicly, which you know you can sympathize with. I mean, one of the, the great themes in the, in the history of Ulysses S. Grant is that he, he was a talented man who had failed badly early in his life, but having emerged psychologically whole through the trauma of it, came out with a strength that enabled him to make tough decisions without being paralyzed with the fear of failing. And that, ironically, was the quality needed in a successful commander for the Union, and not simply the martial qualities and the outward confidence that little Napoleon, which was McClellan's nickname, possessed. So... Again, sometimes the diamond in the rough is the one you want and who won't necessarily um, endear himself to the uh, hiring committee, but has what it takes. And again, McClellan is one of those, what if he just, if he had a little more of that quality or, or as, as Grant said, if he had been put in later to the top job and been given a time to, you know, serve at the lower ranks and build up experience, he might've, he might've been a successful commander. Although I don't think he would have ever have been as great a general as Grant was, at least in the battlefield sense, because again, even with more experience, that dislike of chaos would have inhibited him, as I think it did other Union generals who who, who were put in his place and who failed um, ultimately. But I do think 
he deserves a lot of credit for professionalizing the Army of the Potomac and, and making it to it. Because you really do have to have really good training officers to to take an army of, of citizens and turn them into a fighting force, um, particularly in a country that um, did not have a major war for many, many decades and was not prepared for the changes wrought by the early industrial period in terms of firepower. So, you know, I, I, I do give him a degree of sympathy, even as I hold him accountable for the flaws he had. And that's the thing. And, and I think you get to an important point here is that sometimes timing is everything. It can be a make or break in so many respects. You know, we see it in, in military history. We see it in political history. And that's one of those factors that is kind of outside of our control. But at the same time, you know, certain people in certain situations are the right people at the right time for it. And you also brought up the point of this trauma of failing, this this idea that not being able to handle failure. And that's one thing that you discuss throughout the book as you're looking through these candidates, because you, you know, intrinsically the reason that they're in the book is that they failed at becoming president. But really seeing how some of them handle it in different ways than others. You, you know, some folks are able to go on and they have more success than they did previously, you know, before they ran. And other folks, it is kind of the end for them. So it's it's always fascinating. And one that I wanted to bring up, and that's been a, a personal interest of mine, but again, one of those figures that I, I think the average public doesn't know quite as much about. So in the section about James G. Blaine, you wrote of Blaine that, quote, if there is a Valhalla for those who aspire unsuccessfully to the presidency, then James G. Blaine should have a place of special honor at that table. And so again, for folks who don't necessarily study, you know, haven't studied Gilded Age American politics, they may not recognize this name, but, you know, that's a very strong statement about him. And so I was wondering if you would mind sharing a bit more about Blaine and why you reached that conclusion about him. Well, I, you know, Blaine is one of those figures. He represents the prominent as opposed to the great, and yet the prominent, the powerful ones that that uh, that dominate a particular age, and everyone knows about them while they're active. But when they disappear, they're gone. I mean, think of how many figures, political figures that we we see today in the media, and how well we will remember them five, ten years after they've ended their career. I mean. There are certain names that I recall from my younger days that were dominated the, the news and the media because they were active in Congress or, or in the cabinet level. And yet now, you'd, you, unless you were a student of history, you wouldn't know who they are. And yet they were so powerful in the moment. And the other thing about Blaine is that I think he really personified Gilded Age politics really well. I mean, if you're looking for a representative figure, he's excellent. Because as we noted in the book, there's this lull in, in leadership and national, really true individual national leadership between, really between the Civil War and between the rise of Teddy Roosevelt. McKinley might have emerged if he'd given time into a bigger group, but Theodore Roosevelt really ushers in the age of the, the, the commander in chief as a national figure. And then in between that time, you know, uh, it's really as though it's being run by committee, by, by powerful political interests. And, and, and it's really the age of the political bosses. And, Blaine was one of those figures who was really good at the back deal end of things and, and sometimes the shadier end of things. And again, he represented a good, he represented the Gilded Age politician um, who was both capable, hardworking, 
contributed to the country's growth and everything, but at the same time was was corrupt in, in a way that was at least among his peers conceived as an acceptable level of corruption. You know, there was certain respectable corruption as opposed to unrespectable corruption, and he was respectably corrupt. So, and so that's the fascinating figure um, thing about um, Blaine. The other thing is he's a, he's one of those individuals where you can see him in a successful congressional career. You can see him in a cabinet career, but he just doesn't have the qualities, at least for the, for the modernized or president, because it, like we say, he looks like a grumpy Santa Claus. He just doesn't, he's just not the kind of person you go, oh, well, President Blaine will lead us to greatness. He's just not that kind of figure. Talented, intelligent, ambitious, shrewd, all these wonderful qualities, but he's missing certain factors. And one of the things that interests me in any leadership studies is the, is the missing element, because you always see these people with all these wonderful competencies. But there's that one or two things which keeps them a step away from, from greatness. I remember um, an Irish writer talking about the um, the Irish president, Eamon de Valera, and, and said of de Valera, he wasn't great, but he had elements of greatness within him. And I always thought it was an interesting category um, where, you're, where you're near, but you don't quite make the cut, but you still make an impact. And um, I think um, there are a number of figures here who, who like, you know, like Douglas, for example, who fit in that they have elements of it. it's tantalizing you just a little bit more development the rights you know events who knows where it might have gone you know if, it, if this is i mean again looking at the the history of other countries like britain if world war ii hadn't occurred you know winston churchill would be a very interesting figure known only to professional historians he wouldn't have been the winston churchill that we remember but the, the crisis is what really turned him into the um, political superhero that we remember so I guess in the end, you, all, you have to have the right origin story. Well, and, and that description of Blaine as respectfully corrupt, I think that fits him to a T. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing about that period is that you know the presidency almost took a back seat to what was going on in Congress or what was going on with the movers and shakers of business and industry. And the presidency was really more of this you know, functionary role, but Blaine was in Congress and he was one of those movers and shakers. He was having the the backroom deals and making things happen. And it's it's just fascinating to think about, you know, if he had become president, would he have somehow brought that into the presidency? Would it have changed the presidency? Or would Blaine have just ended up as one of those yet again bearded presidents of the time. And it's it's just so fascinating. But he is a, a, a fascinating figure. And I think that he is, if you want to know about Gilded Age politics, Blaine is a good person to study because he embodies all of that, all of what was going on, because he was at the center of so much of it. And when I first began writing that section, I, I, I came to it with a, with a prejudice that, gee whiz, I wish they had been more interesting characters in this period. But, you know, later on, I, I consider that it may not have been a bad thing for our body politic to have a period where the, the presidency as a central went to sleep and allowed the legislative groups to, to really develop and mature and develop mechanisms um, uh, so they could manage an co- increasingly complex continental-wide industrial you know, society as opposed to having one strong, potentially autocratic figure. So, you know, that period may have been very, very good for us in the long run and having people like Blaine and the committees they led and the coalitions they led running a 
an almost more parliamentary approach to government than we've ever had before or, or probably since. Definitely. And, and it's just, it's, it really is fascinating. And that's been one of the things that I've been interested in, in, in doing the podcast is kind of seeing how these institutions, you know, of course I'm focused on the presidency, but even seeing the legislative branch and the judicial branch develop over time and realizing that they weren't always on the same, the same time scale. You know, you had some periods where the presidency was, you know, developing at a rapid pace, but then it kind of, like you said, goes into this dormant period. But then you've got so much activity in the legislature, you've got things developing in the judiciary. And so it really is fascinating to see the ebbs and flows and how it's it's not always the same in the three branches of government. Right, right. And again, for our the nature, for our type of government, you really do it's like exercise. You have to work out all parts of the body, not just the ones you want to see bulk up. So there has to be a leg day as well as an arm day. And, and the same for our government as well. There had to be periods when the, the impetus lay with one area in government where it had a chance to really take central stage and really develop and evolve. And I think in the long run, that was really beneficial for us. Well, and one office that you know has really been kind of a late bloomer in terms of the body politic in the U.S., is the vice presidency. It's really been in more of the modern era that we've seen that office become something more than, well, you just preside over the Senate and try not to die and we'll try and keep the president alive. You know, it, it's now becoming so much more. But as those who study U.S. presidential elections know, there are a number of vice presidents through the years who have sought that top office themselves. And Many because they were tired of being vice president and wanted to actually do something. So, <laughs> but in the the many vice presidents that have run, some have been, of course, more successful than others. And in your book, you wrote that quote: "Consequently, earning a reputation as a perfect vice president can be a detriment to one aspiring to the presidency." Can you talk more about why that is? Because being um, a really good number two um, does not necessarily endear you to people who want, who want to see the the alpha qualities in in, in, a, in a president. It's an admirable, uh, obviously, it's an admirable and essential skill. But if you're in it too long, people won't see you as the leader; they'll see you as the chief of, of among the followers, and it's difficult to to move at least perception wise from that role into the central role. Um, the people who've done it most successfully are the people I think who didn't linger long in the office, people like Theodore Roosevelt or Harry Truman, who gained all the benefits from the exposure that the vice presidency offered, but without being in the office long enough for it to dampen their reputation as, as the person in charge. So I think, I think the best thing for a person's career is a short tenure as, as a vice president. Obviously, if you're going to be the number two person to someone who serves out two full terms, it can be um, a detriment. On one hand, you know the job, hopefully better than anyone, assuming the president has actually led, led you into their you know, uh, confidence and allowed you to um, assist them up with important things. I mean, some vice presidents have just been very, very seriously marginalized. And, and so they, they, they left the office. They weren't interested in it. But if you, if you do it long enough uh, and you get a sense of, of the central office and you, have another, and you have another history behind you, like as a Senate leader or so on and so forth, then I think that can help propel you to it. I think that's one of the things that is beneficial for Lyndon Johnson when he became the president. He had two things going through. One, he hadn't been vice president for that long, three years. And um, 
he had this very successful career behind him as a congressional leader. So people were very confident and comfortable with him going into that position. And he had been a serious contender for the Democratic nomination in, uh, in 1960. So, so that, that's, a, that's, that's a good example of, of using the vice presidency as a transition. But in other cases, as in the case of Hubert Humphrey, it was not beneficial at all. Not only did someone like Humphrey have to deal with the fact of being perceived as, as too willing a subordinate, he was tainted by the, by the policies that the Johnson adopted towards Vietnam. And he was trapped. He couldn't disavow them without looking disloyal. And, and, and in supporting them, he was placing himself apart from where the trend of the, the country and his own party was going. So that was a case of, of having the exact opposite luck in terms of being a vice president and, and, and moving towards the presidency. Yeah, you know, Johnson and Humphrey both, it's like polar opposites in terms of how the, the office shaped them. The only thing they had in common was that Johnson, like Humphrey, understood the humiliation of being ignored by more powerful people in the president's circle. Well, and, and that's a fascinating point to bring up here because, and it really does seem like you see in some of the elections leading up to that, trying to start to tie a vice presidential candidate to you know, the policies of the president they served under. But the 68 election, I mean, that's one that you really see this and, and you see it more in subsequent elections anytime a vice president runs now it really is well it's tied to that president that they served under but you know humphrey definitely and his candidacy suffered and and plummeted because of that because of the burden of being lbj's vice president and what that meant for him and and how he had to approach the candidacy and knowing that if he would have been more independent he would have done some things differently. Yeah. 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 Um, and of course, there's the tremendous irony in the fact that given that Johnson's own sense of humiliation um, as a vice president did not make him a more empathetic president towards his VP. He was just as bad, if not worse, towards Humphrey in many ways, because that's who he was. Um, he liked to bully and dominate people. So he, he's not someone anybody really would have wanted to be the vice president to. When Kennedy had uh, uh, Johnson as vice president, he may have ignored him, may not have always followed his advice, but he always he was a person of decorum. He never openly was scornful of him, unlike his brother. So yeah, so the experience is, is different. But again, that, that vice presidents like losing candidates have that awful tantalizing proximity to the power, but never quite being there. So yeah, yeah, and you know, for any of the the candidates who were unsuccessful in their runs, you know, there is that that pang of the loss. But you've got to imagine, especially for vice presidents who are running and then lose, knowing they were so close, they were a heartbeat away from the presidency and had a sense of what that would look like. And to know that wasn't going to happen, you know, it's you can imagine just how burdensome that could be for some folks and Humphrey, especially, I mean, it's just, you look at pictures from the campaign, you look at videos of the time and you can just see it, it was a stressful time for him. And yeah. Yeah, it does. We, we, we like to observe that the presidency ages people. They, their hair almost invariably turns gray, but the campaigning for presidency also does that to people as well. It takes off years of their lives, particularly when they, they've gone through so much effort 
and it hasn't paid off. And the sense of rejection, you really have to have, you really have to have a very strong ego to even run for president because, I mean, the sense of, of not winning um, can be quite painful. And of course, in the United States, our situation with the popular versus the electoral vote makes as, as a twist in life, whereas you can win one but not the other. And then you're like, you know, so, and I think that, and in, in, in the case of like Al Gore or Hillary Clinton, you can really see the anguish that comes from having been so close but not quite getting it. And then living the rest of your life with that sense of what if, what might have been. Well, and as we're moving more into the modern era and, and starting to get closer to the present day in terms of candidates, you know, one candidate that talks openly about his candidacy and loss is Michael Dukakis. And, you know, beyond him just being one of the political aspirants that you covered in the book, he also provided the forward for the book. So I was wanting to see if you would share kind of how that came about and the impact that you think the Dukakis campaign had on American presidential politics, as you note that he was a very distinctive candidate, you know, both in terms of his background, but then also his approach for the time. It was it was distinct from previous presidential campaigns. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a first in many ways. He was the first Greek American to run for president, and uh, or to, to put it more broadly, he was one of the first non wasps to, or you know. And I, when I say wasp, I even counted John F. John F. Kennedy was an honorary wasp in many ways. The prep school experience he just doesn't rub off easily. So in that sense, that was a distinctive break from. It really said we're enlarging the pool of. That's when you really begin to see a more diverse approach to the presidency, and I don't think that's always been fully appreciated. In the case of Dukakis, he was ironically better prepared for the psychological impact of defeat because he had a, a devastating loss a decade earlier when he had ran for his second term as governor where he thought he was going to be a shoo-in because in terms of most of the metrics for a successful governorship, he had done very well. He was, he was very confident, and um, he lost to someone who just did a much better job of campaigning, and it came as a shock to him. But you know, it really forced him to retreat, reevaluate, and then come back, and then run again and, and be reelected as governor to an even a more successful second term. So I think Dukakis, I'm sure, as he, although he was disappointed, and as he indicates in his forward, had psychological armor produced by his earlier struggles that made it, I think, easier for him to, uh, to deal with it. And then go on to um, a very productive career in academia as a professor of public policy. So I think he's a good model of someone who's handled it very gracefully. And uh, I, uh, we, we'd wanted a living candidate to write a forward, and one of my um, friends here in the Boston area worked with Dukakis at uh, Northeastern and sent him an email. And then a week afterwards, by the weirdest coincidence, I ran into Dukakis on the subway. And I just spent several... I was literally sitting across from him like a few days after the email had gone out, and I was like, okay, I grew up, I, I spent my formative years in New York City where you don't talk to strangers on the subway, but I'm going to hate myself if I don't say things I'm struggling for. And then Kitty Dukakis, Dukakis's wife, came to my rescue. She was looking at me, and then she finally elbowed her husband and said, Mike, I think this guy wants to talk to you. I said, thank you. And then I just did, hi, Governor, I'm you know, Peter Shea. 
uh, you know, my friend Jim Grenier, um, you know, oh yeah, Jim, 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 what's Jim sent you an email. I'm writing this book about it. Said, Would you be interested? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, just uh, follow up my assistant in uh, a couple of days and, and we'll talk and uh, we'll start a meeting. And that was that. And then I visited him in his office in Northeastern. And um, and then we, you know, uh, maybe about a year later, we, um, Tom and I, you know, met him at the, uh, at the uh, train station, which is, which is named after him. And we did a lovely shoot. And, um, and he shared some very interesting um, a- anecdotes. He, as a young um, Democrat, he um, he'd helped escort Humphrey during an election um, campaign stop in the, in the 60s. And he, he said, you know, it ran late and everything. And then Humphrey got there. And then he just extemporized a three-hour presentation and talk. And said, I was amazed. He said, I was just like, he's, he was able to talk at length, gracefully, in detail about a number of issues at a time when most of us were just like, I want to go to bed. And he said, you know, that was really remarkable. I think inspiration for somebody like um, Dukakis to, to really realize that the public life drew so many remarkable people. And I think it's important to remember that, particularly in the post-war years, public service and government service was so attractive to many people that it, it did attract people away from the um, lures of business. And, and our, some of our best people went into government because that's that's where really what they felt where the action was where they could most most impact. I, I sometimes feel that we don't have that same dynamic today, and that people will do very talented people who go into government to burnish their resumes and make contacts, and then kind of cash out into a lucrative private um, career. But that was certainly a time when people wanted to spend most of their working lives in government, and they only did the private sector for a brief period to make some money. So it's I think, and I think you see the. I think you see the quality of the, the talent pool is it being weaker than it was in the past. And one of the things that struck me in the book were the times of the presidential elections when we had two really good candidates who would have both done a fine job. And we, of course, we have to choose only one. And I think that was certainly the case in 1948 with, with Truman and Dewey. Both of them would have done a fine job, but we can only choose one. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that is an important, an important thing to consider about modern politics because you know, we had so many decades where, you know, yeah, you may know the names, you may know, you know, oh, well, that's so-and-so, that's the Speaker of the House, whatever, but it was seen as kind of different from nowadays. It, I think we really have gotten more into the the fame aspect of politics, of having to be a sensation, have your name all over the place. And is it really for something that's admirable? Is it really for public service? Or is it just because you're saying something that's outrageous in order to get your name out there? And and that does, that changes government, that changes the the public conversation, that changes the debates that are going on, or, you know, how much substance really comes from that. And and it was interesting because this was, you know, in the 80s, you start to see some of this shift. And with somebody like Dukakis, who wasn't so much about the, the backroom deals and wanted more of getting out there with the people and, and getting a sense of what was happening on the ground, you know, it's it's starting to shift and, you know, maybe we've gone too far towards the the spotlight and you know how do we get back to people who do really want to serve and maybe a little more visible than they were in previous eras but 
you know, how do we find that balance again? Well, it's funny you say that because one of the things that the caucus mentioned, it was, it was around the time of the 2016 election. And as, as a party elder, of course, he was involved in the ebb and flow of, you know, of the cycle. And he was, he was very critical of the over-dependence on the digital connections. He said, the fact that we're not canvassing door to door is not a good thing. You need to go out and show people that you're willing to go out to the door and talk to them about it. this idea that we'll just do digital. It's, it's, you know, people need that kind of, they need that extra effort to demonstrate something. And he really felt that, that would have been a, a blind spot with politics um, as being run by the Democratic Party at the time. And I remember thinking about the time about Dukakis's earlier campaign for governor, how he lost because he hadn't really done at that time a significant enough outreach. And there's this, there's this wonderful anecdote from the memoir of uh, Tip O'Neill, our prominent uh, representative, where early in his career he had, um, he had heard uh, that his old neighbor, his old neighborhood, hadn't voted for him, and he was like shocked. He said, "Ma'am, you, you know me. I when I was a teenager, I cut your lawn. Why would you not?" And she said, "Thomas." People like to be asked for their vote. And he said, okay. He said, and learned that. He says, and from that day on, on, on election day, I turned to my wife and I asked him, dear, I would very much like your vote. And she would say, Thomas, I'll give you all due consideration. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but exactly. And, and that, that really, I love that. It, it really does speak to, you know, it's one thing that I've I've talked with folks in many aspects of my life about. You know, I, I think we are at a place where, you know, people feel apart from something rather than being a part of something. And I think that that's that's key, and especially with politics, because politics is about the citizens. It is the 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 social compact. It's us coming together and saying this is how we're going to be governed and how we're going to move forward together. And, and it, it is fascinating. If you, if you don't ask for somebody's vote, then how can you expect them to support you? How can you expect them to believe in you? Yeah. yeah. You're not just submitting your resume. You're making an appeal to the people. And again, that's that political awareness you have to have about this, you know, how people behave. They want to, no matter, before they make you powerful, they want you to come to them in an act of, hum- of humility or the appearance of humility, ask to be appointed their representative uh, and and to do that in a way that, you know, um, inspires them. So, but I also took your, your earlier point about the, you know, the, the culture about it. Yeah, I, the, the, the culture of celebrity has been, has become a kind of a debased coinage. I mean, we used to be celebrated for having done something significant. And now as the critics would say, we're famous for being famous. And it's led to a culture where our, some of our more prominent, at least younger politicians, are, are known for being really good at social media, which I think is wonderful. It's an essential tool of our current political culture. But I'm concerned that they're focusing too much on being really good at social media and not being good at building bridges and passing legislation. Because, you know, being, being a... Um, a political star on Twitter doesn't mean you you passed anything, you know. And when your career is over, you know your Twitter fame is not going to be, uh, I think, a worthy legacy. It'll make you an interesting footnote, but that's it. So. Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing, you know. We and we see this in candidacies over the ages. You know, we we see folks who 
you know, make a big splash, but maybe they don't have as much substance and then they do end up as that political footnote. And, and, you know, there are some of those within this group of also rands, but, you know, maybe there are also some folks that maybe they just didn't ask for enough votes. Maybe they just didn't ask the right person. So, you know, as we're, as we're kind of looking at this holistically across the ages, you know, all the people that you studied that could have been president, do you think that there is one that really things might've been better if they, if they had become president rather than their opponent? Well, you know, I'm a really big fan of Charles Evans Hughes, um, who ran against Woodrow Wilson. Hughes, I think, lost because for two reasons. One, he was too similar to Wilson. He really didn't offer. There wasn't a really sense of, you know, being um, a different flavor. And and going back to asking, he made a, a critical uh, mistake by not wooing a, a key um, political leader in, in California and just took it for granted. And that gentleman did not pull for him as well as he might have. Because, again, apart from the ordinary voter, it's often been the case that you do have to woo the leaders of the, of the various political factions around the country. It's the belief now, thanks to the election of 2016, that you know, as long as you're really good at Twitter, you don't have to do that anymore. I'm not so convinced. I do think, I think to a certain degree, 2016 was something of an anomaly. It will change our politics, but it won't change it as much as people think. And I think at the end of the day, being able to being good at at I don't know, connecting schmoozing with uh, the, the, the party machinery is also very important, or at least having people who can do a good job for you in that respect and, and being aware of the, that importance. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it really is. You know, there's so much that's outside of any candidate's control, but there are certain things that, you know, you've got you've to get everything aligned. You've got to get everything in place to to kind of make magic happen. And if you don't do that, if you leave out one key component and that can be it, but you know, with all the folks that you studied for this book, all the folks who entered in the arena, as you said, do you feel that there is one that folks should really know more about that really stands out as somebody that, that would be good for our audience to do a deeper dive into to learn a bit more about. I think it would be unfair to this whole cast character to simply say, you know, we have to have someone step forward to be a star. I think the I think this collection of people together, collectively, um, are, are interesting. I don't think I, I there was I for me there wasn't any one person who I thought, oh my god, this one really, how do we miss this guy? He's so important. I think they're all interesting people to varying degrees, and I think they're all fascinating representatives of their time and and showing how they influenced events even if they didn't win and i think that's some really important i mean like horace greeley i think had virtually no chance of winning um which is just as well because he dies before the new saga but he makes a significant contribution to american history in his role as a newspaper editor and he makes a significant contribution to our politics by challenging a sitting president from his own party and establishing a precedent that you could do that. Technically, there had never been rules against it, but just people didn't think you you did it. And he said, yeah, if you, in, in, this, in this environment, if you don't think even your own party is doing a good enough job putting forth um, a, a good candidate, you have a right and an obligation to, to go forward. And the party needs to take it seriously because you can do lead to a splinter vote. Now, in the case of Greeley, it didn't 
splinter the vote at all, even with his um, uh, uh, alliance with the Democrats. But it did set a precedent. And then about 50 years later, you see Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt going with the bull moose approach, doing the same thing, challenging the, the, the consensus of the party leaders and, and basically, you know, in many ways, throwing the election to, to, to Wilson. So, I mean, again, it shook things up, but I think in a good way. But I really, you know, I, 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 I've liked and sympathized with them all, some more than others. But, I, again, I, I admire their grit, their willingness to do things, and I particularly admire people who were able to continue to do things productively even after losing, because one of the things that we address in the book is the peculiarity of American culture where we celebrate business failure as an important learning experience, but we treat political failure as um, a scarlet mark. And like losing presence can sometimes be the best thing that happens for many people because it frees them. Some would argue that in the case of Al Gore, whatever kind of president he might have been, by running, losing, he, he was then released from the burden of having to run for president anymore. Because many people said that he'd been raised by his father basically to be a presidential candidate. So when presidential candidate Gore was finally released from his applications, he could then become a different kind of person and explore what he wanted to do rather than the burden or expectation that was placed on him. And you saw that transformation with the beard and then everything. And I think he's probably a much more probably a happier, mellow, more mellow person than, than he might have otherwise have been. Well, and I, I completely agree with you that really all of these stories, all of these histories are important. And I think they tell us different things. You know, there is that thread that runs through that these are all people who ran and lost the presidential race. But in that, I think that there's so much valuable insight that folks can take from each of these folks and and so I'm so thankful that you and Tom persevered in making this book and releasing it because I really think it it helps us to understand, you know, because I nobody likes losing. Nobody likes being the losing candidate. However, how we deal with loss, how we deal with failures is sometimes and in many cases more important than how we deal with success because it can be a transformative experience, you know, as you were saying, that, that it can make us into an even better person than we right. could have thought that we would be. So, Yeah, failure, failure isn't your enemy. It's a friend with rough manners. <laughs> um, exactly. And, and some of the best candidates and the best people that we did get were people who had to encounter significant feel and, and, and became a better version of themselves. And some of the more interesting examples from the book are people who, who didn't have critical failures early on. And therefore we saw them in a less evolved light. McClellan obviously was one example. I would say Adley Stevenson was another one who um, had all these wonderful qualities, but never had, never had a really, never had a crucible moment in his life where he really had to evolve as an adult and become a better or more capable leader. As in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, whose bout with polio really transformed who he was from being a sort of talented dilettante to really being the FDR that we remember and we revere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and Peter, as we're wrapping up, I just want to give you an opportunity because um, you know we always like to ask folks that come on the show to 
share with the audience what projects you're working on now or where your your research interests have been leading you as of late. Well, you know, I, I'm always interested in history, but my, my, my primary uh, professional role is in learning and development. And so I'm, I'm, I'm more interested right now in doing um, short simulations for learning because I really believe in experiential learning. And again, I, I, the theme of, fa- of constructive failure runs throughout my work. And in simulations, people can try things and fail and learn from it without being traumatized. So in a sense, there's a connection between my professional work and my private interest in, in the history of, of failure in politics. Because again, I realized that failure is such a crucial learning experience, but it's how we address failure, how we respond to failure in our lives, which really makes a difference between you know, ulti- ultimate success and ultimate failure. Because we're obviously we're, we're an ongoing project until the very end, and um, failure at the right times in our life is, is, is a key mark of an truly successful person. And there's a quote, it's, I think it's at the beginning of the, one of the introductions, from Melville, who says, no one can be truly great if they haven't experienced failure. There's just no way, because failure changes you in a way that, you, that, that unbroken success will never, never will. Truer words were never spoken. Thank you so much for your time. I know our audience, this book is very much a success, and I highly recommend checking it out. The book is In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls, and it's published by Trope Publishing. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work and your insight, and it has been a pleasure talking with you. And pleasure's been mine as well. I've really enjoyed this chat, and the book can be found on Amazon or at Trope's website, trope.com, T-R-O-P-E.com. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Special thanks again to Peter Shea for the time and insight that he provided for this episode, to Lauren Ball from Trope Publishing for her work in setting up the interview, and to Christian Perry of Your Podcast Pal for his audio work on this episode. A link to the book can be found on the sources section for this episode, or you can go to trope.com and search for In the Arena. If you'd like to get Christian's assistance with your podcast or audio project, go to his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. As for me, my website is Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, dot com. There, you can find links for this episode, past episodes, and many more resources related to presidential history. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidencyspodcast at gmail.com. Or connect with me on social media if you haven't already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. 
Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.